The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, good morning, good morning, Heritage. How are you guys doing? All right, hey, if anybody needs a Bible, will you throw your hand up in the air? Uh, just leave it there for a minute and we will bring you a Bible. Uh, this can be something you can borrow or you can keep it if you need it. Um, hey guys, one quick announcement too. Jeff forgot um, on purpose. Uh, that, uh, he didn't forget on purpose, he, he just forgot. Uh, one, one announcement, the next two Sundays, this is really important, the next two Sundays, uh, because they're res, uh, resurfacing the gym floor in here, which they do every year, uh, we have to meet outside, we get, sorry, we get to meet outside uh, in the breezeway, which is going to be really fun, uh, and we're going to do that one service, and it's 9.30, both services, right Aaron? Okay, so the next two weeks, everybody say 9.30, 9.30. outside. One service. Okay, then we'll be back in here in our gym floor. We'll be shinier, which is really important for the Holy Spirit to show up, actually. So um, (laughs) praise the Lord for that. Um, If you guys have your Bibles, grab them. Book of Philemon. Philemon. Not to be confused with Philippians or any of those other PH books. Philemon is tucked right before Hebrews. It's one page, so if you miss it, don't feel bad. Uh, While you guys are finding it, flipping there, I'm going to pray over our time in the Scriptures Father, thank you so much, God, for who you are. God, thank you that you communicate to us who you are. You don't just leave us wandering, leave us guessing about your nature. God, you make it very clear in your, in your word, Lord, how you feel about us, what you've done for us, what you are calling us to do in response to what you've done. This morning, Lord, I just pray that we would hold your scriptures in the highest regard. Lord, that we would submit ourselves under its authority. Father, that our hearts would be open to convicting things. Lord, that you would be stirring. Lord, not that we would do anything out of guilt, Lord, but that you would be stirring things we could do out of joy. And Father, if there's something here that we're missing as a church, I pray that you would bring it to the surface. God, speak to your people, we pray. We're desperate to hear from you, Lord. We trust you. We know that what you have for us is good. Give us the faith and the strength to believe you and take you at your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we'll get into Philemon in a a second, but I wanted to spend a minute just thinking through, talking through, um, as Jeff said already, we're gonna talk about the subject of community this morning. Uh, And I wanna kind of start off with a question. What... What is, what is our Western worldview of community? What is the Western worldview that we live in, the Western ideology? What do they say about community? It's really interesting. Uh, maybe five years ago, I was um, leading a college retreat uh, at a retreat center nearby, and um, I just finished up um, one of the teachings for the day, and there was a guy that I noticed as I was teaching that he just seemed like, like he didn't looked like he quite fit there, you know. Um, he looked like he just seemed a little, seemed a little, felt a little out of place. And so I went up to him afterwards. I want to introduce him, see, just see uh, who he was. And I went up to him and, and talked to him. And he said, yeah, you know, he's actually, I'm not even a Christian. I was like, oh, cool. I'm glad you're here. You know, hopefully, you know, he'd heard something. He's like, yeah, re- you know, thanks for the teaching, yada, yada. He's all, I'm actually an atheist, um, but I'm a journalist, he said. And he's like, the reason I'm at this retreat, the reason I signed up for this is because I find Christians fascinating. 
He said, I, I find Christians to be the last, or church, I should say, to be the last stronghold in our Western culture of any kind of sense of real community. He's like, our, our country, our nation used to be founded on community. It used to be part of who we were at a DNA level, and, and we've moved away from that as the world has gotten bigger, right? He said, but, but the church is like the last, the, the last thing I see that's real community. I just thought that was so notable that here's this atheist, this non-believer who's fascinated by the fact that the church loves each other. Isn't that the way it should be? So what is it about, what is it, where's community at in our culture? What do we think about it? What did we do with it? What happened to it? When I say community in regards to our culture uh, right now, I think the first thing that people would probably think of is proximity. Where do you live? Neighborhood. When I say community, you probably think of the neighborhood that you live in. So I live in South Medford, uh, over by South Medford High School, and I'm in a community, but I have no community with those people. Okay, I, I know a few people. I know my neighbors and things. We just just moved in there, but that's not really a community. It just happens to be where I live. And when people say that they're for community, what they really mean is that they're just sort of embracing some kind of a civic duty. And when people say they're for community, what that means is, is I, I want my community to be well taken care of. I don't want there to be trash on the streets. Uh, I'm going to join some kind of maybe an HOA thing, uh, make sure that, that my community is safe, that our schools are good. Uh, but really, that's more about serving themselves. There's no real sense of community there. What it is is more proximity. Now, the Western suburban life could not be farther from community, Right? We drive our cars, okay, uh, while on our phones, not paying attention to anyone else. Um, you guys don't do that. But, uh, and then we pull into our garage, quickly shutting the garage door right behind us just in case our neighbor wants to talk. Uh, we go into the back door through the garage. Uh, we don't hang out in our front yards anymore. We don't build porches on the front of houses like we used to. Now we hang out in our backyards so that no one can bother us or disturb us. Uh, we get back in our car, pull out, go to the grocery store. We're on our phones. We don't talk to people. This is the individualistic culture that we sort of live in now. Okay, there's no real sense of community. Uh, when we think of community, again, it's just neighborhood. Okay, that's, that's kind of the narrative of, of, of the world that we live in. But the reality is, as we'll talk about, human beings were designed for community. Okay, we were designed for it. There's something in us that longs for it. That's why we want friends. That's why, we, that's why Facebook exists, right? Uh, that, that's why we, we long for wives, for husbands, for kids, for families. That's, in, in every person, unless you live... 50 miles out of Cave Junction, for every human being, if someone has a longing for community, right? Uh, there's something in this that, that likes that. Jeremy, I'm sorry about the Cave Junction joke. That's, I, I apologize. Um, the thing is, is what we've done is we've redefined what community is in our culture. We still want it. We still like it. We still long for it. We've just redefined it. And what we've done is we've traded in community for subcultures, Community for subculture. Something happened in the last 50 to, 100, 50 to 100 years called globalization, where the world became very small, where we're connected with everybody in the world now, and through things like internet and social media and airplanes, uh, we can now connect with anybody that we want. And as a result of that, I, I'm fascinated by the hundreds of thousands of different subcultures. What a subculture is, is, is some kind of a culture that is people brought together based around some kind of a common interest. Here's a few that I've noticed that I think are quite interesting. Um, pe some people have a culture based around lifestyle blogging, okay? Um, some people have a culture based around crossword puzzling. I watched a documentary about this the other day. It was fascinating. There's conferences for crossword puzzling. 
And like there's these all-stars that live in the world of crosswording and everybody in crossword subculture knows who they are and they go to these conferences and solve puzzles really fast and it's crazy. Uh, music subcultures, gaming subcultures, uh, people that read and review books subcultures, camping, fishing, knitting. My mom is like the queen of knitting subculture. So she is amazing. She used to have a website and she got so many people hitting her up for patterns she had to close it down. She's the queen of the knitting subculture. Uh, wine tasting, we don't know anything about that in Southern Oregon. Uh, exercising, right? CrossFit, whatever it is, there's a subculture there. People get into it. Uh, shopping, retirement, uh, you know, getting together and talk about how big your RV is and, and you know, uh, how, whatever, you know. Uh, the drug community, there's so many different types of subcultures in the internet and the, the, the transportation has made it all possible. Now, I'm not saying those things are evil. But what I am saying is, is that the problem with our community is that we are connecting on things that really don't matter. Our relationships are standing on a foundation of things that have no eternal value. So I can go run with a guy that's into running, and we can talk about running, and we can be into running, and that's fine, and that's great, but if it never moves past that, of what value is that relationship ultimately? This is the narrative of, of community for our culture. And in many ways, placing people around you only based off of common interest is fertilizer for idolatry. You're you're, you're obsessed with spending money and shopping, so you find other people that are obsessed with spending money and shopping. You're obsessed with a certain sport, football, basketball, so you place other people in your life around you that are obsessed with football and basketball. Then you don't feel like there's something wrong with you, right? Uh, you spend all your money on magic cards, so you find other people that spend all their money on magic cards, right? And, and, if, and, if, and if this group doesn't embrace you anymore, then what do we do in the West? We go find another group, okay? Unfriend, unlike, go find another subculture. There's hundreds of thousands to choose from. This is the reality of the community that we live in. Now, how has that trickled into the church? Because I don't know if you guys know this, and it shouldn't be this way, but oftentimes the church is downstream from culture, okay? The church will at some point adopt and embrace and absorb what the culture is saying is okay. Just wait. Some things that the culture is saying, okay, will trickle down, already are trickling down into into the church. So how has that idea of community affected the church? Well, First of all, the church is not ready for the biblical mandate of community. When the church in the West hears things like church discipline, confession, accountability, and commitment, they cringe. We're not ready for those kinds of biblical principles because we've been raised on a diet of shallow subcultures and community that doesn't really have community. When the Bible speaks to those things, we shudder. That can't be right. Our Western brains can't wrap around the idea of confession or accountability or church discipline. It sounds so harsh, right? Because we've been raised on a diet of false community. What that also means is that what the church is selling, if I can use that word, the product that the church is giving is not authentic, hard community. What the church is selling, what the church is giving is comfort because that's what church goers are buying. People aren't coming to church because they're looking to get in some kind of a relationship that will really grow them and really make them have to, to, to walk in sanctification. People are going to churches because they want to be comfortable because that's what churches are selling. 
the gospel and the biblical mandate for being in Christian community looks a whole lot harder than most people want to reckon with. And that's a reality that we have to face, that we have to think about. This morning, the subject I want to run after is the case for biblical community. I want to, with you guys, think about this. That's just the Holy Spirit making, it's just confirming what I'm saying, just so you know. Um, This morning, the the subject I want to run after is this biblical community. And and I want to take a look at Philemon. And I think there's some things in here that are really going to kind of make this case. So if you guys have your Bibles, Philemon, let me give you a little bit of background before we dive into this. Uh, Philemon is one of those books where people probably just kind of glance over it. You might not even know it's there because you wouldn't see it flipping through the New Testament. Uh, It's not a book like Romans that is filled with theology or a book like Philippians that's filled with doctrine or Hebrews filled with Christology. A lot of Philemon gets kind of skipped over. Uh, ultimately, because it just seems like a random little letter, a random little note. And that's ultimately what it is. It's a short letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a man named Philemon. Now, who is Philemon? Philemon, uh, or you could call him Philemon, whatever you like. Um, I had a pastor who used to call him Philemon. I was like, I don't think that's right. Um, Philemon was sort of this well-to-do, well-off um, Roman citizen who lived in Colossae, and essentially, just like most Roman citizens who, you know, had any kind of influence at that time, they would have had multiple servants working for them, bond servants. Those servants essentially would have been their property, okay? And there's lots of reasons why you would be a bond servant. We don't have time to get into all of that, but Philemon, as this well-off businessman, essentially, has a bond servant named Onesimus, Okay, and Onesimus was one of those bond servants. Onesimus essentially has somehow either stolen from or taken something from or in some way broken relationship with his master Philemon and run into the arms of Paul. Now, we don't know exactly what it does. It seems like he maybe stole some money or did something uh, in a way, but, but essentially, this young man Onesimus is in a bad place. He's in a bad situation. Under Roman law, a bondservant had no legal rights. You, your legal rights were tied to your master. So by getting out from under the covering of his master, possibly stealing money from him, Philemon had every right to have Onesimus ultimately executed, put to death. Philemon runs to the arms of the apostle Paul. Probably had some kind of a relationship with him from before. We don't know. But as he's in the company of of the Apostle Paul in prison, Onesimus has a heart change. He sees the reality of what he's done. He repents, finds Jesus, finds forgiveness. And he becomes, as Paul will say, like his son in the faith. Paul becomes like his father. So now Paul's in kind of this awkward situation. He has this relationship with Philemon uh, from, from when he planted a church in Colossae. And now he has this young man... Onesimus, who's ultimately a criminal, but has had a change of heart. Paul finds himself in the middle of these two. So what does Paul do? He he picks up his pen, wanting to reconcile this this tense Christian relationship here. He picks up his pen and he begins to write a letter to Philemon on behalf of this young man, Onesimus. And this is what we're going to look at. So starting in verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. 
because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So you can see from there that Philemon is in some kind of a position where he's in ministry. He's probably leading some kind of a house church. Um, Paul, by the way, was responsible for him being saved. Paul brought the gospel to Colossae. So ultimately Philemon is almost like a son to him as well in the faith. So he's appealing to this fact that, that you are one that serves and loves and gives to the church. In verse 8, Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I love that. Paul's like, hey, just so you know, I could tell you what to do, Philemon, but I'll ask you, you know, even though I could, but just know, I could tell you, but I'm not going to. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, I, Paul, an old man now, a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Notice he calls him his child, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion. In other words, Philemon, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to forgive this young man simply because you feel like you have to. I want you to do it because you want to. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, will write this. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Okay, what, what is Paul asking for in this letter? Okay, I want you to understand sort of the, the, the severity of the ask that Paul has for Philemon. He's asking him to forgive a slave who has ripped him off and run away and by Roman law could easily be executed. But not only is he asking him to forgive him, he's actually asking him to invite him into his home as a brother. He's asking him to promote his social status instantly into being part of the family of Philemon. Paul, what are you, crazy? I mean, I can imagine him opening this letter and being like, are you serious? This guy rips me off, runs away, breaks the law. Now you want me to bring him back and invite him into my house as part of my family? It's a big ask. Now, how could Paul possibly ask something like this of his brother in the Lord Philemon? Well, two words. Gospel community. Gospel community. Let me show you something. Look at verse four. See, Paul saw an opportunity to live out the gospel through Christian relationship. Look at, look at verse four here. I'm sorry, verse six. And we're gonna look at this in the NIV because this verse specifically makes a lot more sense uh, in the NIV. He says, I pray, okay, this is his appeal to Philemon in this letter. He says, I pray that your partnership, now the word partnership there is 
koinonia. You guys have heard that before, right? Uh, some churches, their small groups are called koinonia groups, okay? The word koinonia essentially means this. Uh, it, it means partnership. It means um, having a mutual uh, interest. It means community, fellowship, uh, mutual participation is the idea. Paul's saying, I pray that our mutual participation, our sharing is what the ESV says, or our partnership, what the NIV says, that our partnership, our community with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. So here's Paul's reason for asking. Here's Paul's why behind asking such a, a big thing of Philemon. He says, you and I, if we do this, our partnership, our community will illustrate what God's love looks like. You see, for Paul, the gospel wasn't just something to speak. It wasn't just something to say. It wasn't just something to preach or proclaim or write about. For Paul, the gospel was something to live. It was something that needed to be illustrated something that needed to be flushed out through the life of Christian relationships. What I love about the book of Philemon is though it's not some big theological work, what it is is it's a snapshot of what it looks like for the church to love each other, for the church to work through things, for the church to have tension in those relationships. And what Paul is saying is by this tension in this relationship, you have an opportunity, Philemon, to model the gospel. And when we partner in it, it will be effective and deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. I'll say it this way. The gospel may be heard through preaching or through the reading of the word, but it is seen in 3D by the way Christians love each other. Okay? There is, there, there is a deficit if all that you do is hear the word of God. If you do not put into practice the gospel that has been preached to you, you are at a deficit in your understanding of who God is and what he's done and how he loves you. The, the New Testament is not all theology. Theology is simply the study of God. The New Testament is partly theology, but it's also, by and large, ecclesiology. And ecclesiology is the study of the church, how the church is supposed to interact you look at any epistle that Paul writes, look at Ephesians, the first three chapters, all theology. This is who you are in Christ. This is who God is. And then the whole second half of the book, Paul devotes to how to live with each other. It's kind of a big deal. It's kind of important to him. He spent half of his epistles explaining how to get along. The reason is because we cannot understand the gospel fully unless we see it worked out within the confines of Christian community. That was God's plan for how we understand the fullness of the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying right here. Listen to what the theologian Francis Schaeffer asserted. He said this. He said, our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. This is how they will know. What did Jesus say? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay, not just they will know you are Christians by being a loving person. Okay, 
They will know that you are Christians by how you love one another in the church and you take care of each other, that your family, that you act like it, that you get along. And if you don't get along, you don't run. You stay together. This is the final Christian apologetic. This is how the world knows that we're different by the way that we love one another. It's huge. So what does the Bible say about community? This is a lot. I don't have to go very far to make a case for biblical community. It's right there in the beginning. In Genesis, God created man in his image. And it says, specifically, let us create man in what? Our image. Guys, our God is a community. He himself is three in one. God, before he even created mankind, had a community. If I can say this, he was a small group. Okay? I, that, might be a little, that might be a little weird. Okay, but seriously... God created mankind for the purpose of being invited into his community that he had within himself. Well, how do you know that? Because in John 17, when Jesus prays for the church, he prays specifically that they would be one like him and the Father are one. His goal was that they could be together like Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are together. Unity, community, togetherness, that was the goal. That was the hope. It is in our DNA to be community dwellers because we are made in the image of a God that is a community in and of himself. You cannot get away from that. That's who you are. The biblical narrative does not center around one person. And if it does, it's Jesus, okay? What I mean by that is it's not a story about one person. It's a story about a group of people. Have you ever thought about that? The Old Testament is not a story about Abraham or about David. It's a story about Israel. This nation, this kingdom, this group of people. That's how God does things. He does things in groups. And we have such a hard time with that in the West. Because the whole world is about me. I am the star of my movie. So therefore, the Bible must be written to me specifically. Therefore, every verse must be some kind of love letter from God to me, speaking it only to me, right? No. Have fun reading Leviticus with that mindset. Tell me how that works out for you, okay? It doesn't work. Are you included in it? Yes. Is it about you? No. It's about Jesus, and it's about Jesus' relationship with a group of people. First Israel, grafted into Israel, the church, and in the end, in Revelation, a bride. And it's all a group. It's all a community. It's not about one person. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us how to pray. He says, our Father, give us this day our daily bread. He taught them to pray in community. He taught them to pray as a group, as a unit. Now, intentional prayer on your own is very important. But Jesus, when teaching them how to pray, taught them how to pray as a group, assuming that they would pray as a group with people. It's important. The law in Leviticus was given so that the nations could see how Israel, this nation ruled by God, existed with one another. That's why he was so meticulous in many of the laws, because he wanted them to be different, that the world would see how Israel could exist as a nation, different than the other pagan nations. Community is there all through the scriptures. So what is biblical community? 
just three things, if you're a note taker, three things about what biblical community actually is. And I wanna get this right. First thing is this, this is important. Biblical community is intentionality, not proximity. It's intentionality, not proximity. Proximity means I'm around Christians. I'm I'm in a group with Christians or I attend a church with Christians or I have friends that happen to be Christians. I have relationships with people that are Christians. That doesn't mean you're in community. That just means you're in proximity. Okay, you could go to church twice a week your entire life and never be in community, but simply be in proximity to Christians. There is a difference. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in 1024. He says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the biblical mandate. Not that we would have relationships that just say, yeah, because you're a Christian, I will be around you. But that you would have relationships that are intentional, relationships that are for a purpose. Let me ask you guys a a tough question. Do you have anyone in your life that has verbally, vocally committed to be in your life for the sole reason of you growing as a Christian? Have you, do you have a relationship with someone that you have committed vocally to that person, that you are in that relationship for the sole purpose of them growing as a Christian? Not just, yeah, we have friends that are Christians, but no, I am in this person's life so that they grow. I'm in this person's life with the specific goal of I want to see you grow in grace. I want to see you grow in your knowledge of Jesus. Someone that will call you when you aren't there on Sunday and notices when you're gone. Someone that if you were to walk away from the church would go and find you because their sole commitment to you is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their sole commitment for you is your growth, your good. Not some subculture, not some shallow relationship. We need those people in our life. We cannot neglect to meet together. We must stir one another on to good works and love. How could Paul ask Philemon this question? (laughs) Paul was in a gospel-centered community with this man. Paul was in the trenches with this man. Paul planted a church in his hometown, Colossae, where it's almost assured that, that, that Philemon was a part of. He talks to him as though they have great relational equity. He's not coming to this guy as a stranger saying, hey, I heard you're a Christian. Can you forgive my boy here? No, he's saying, hey, you know me. I've invested in you. I'm your spiritual father. Philemon, the thing I'm the most focused on with you is your Christian growth. And because of that, I can ask you to do this huge thing. Because Paul knew that in order for Philemon to grow as a Christian, he had to forgive this young man. And so he asked him to, because Paul cared more about Philemon's growth than he did about any kind of awkward relational tension. That's what intentional community is. I'm not worried about if it gets awkward. I'm worried about your soul. I'm not worried about if you don't call me back for a few days or you delete me from your Facebook. I'm worried about you growing in Christ. Whatever it costs, that's community. That's the thing that the Bible has called us to. That's the biblical mandate for that. Oh, Sam, that sounds intense. It is. You need the Holy Spirit for that kind of stuff. It is intense. Do you have people like that in your life? Are you being that for someone else? The second thing that biblical community is, 
is it's exercising our gifts. It's exercising our gifts. Um, spiritual gifts are, are, are the most undersold thing. God created you guys to be on mission. He created you guys with a unique set of giftings that the Bible sort of peels back the curtain a little bit on for us to see. And he gave you those giftings, not so that you could, like he said, sit in your house and speak in tongues and edify yourself. He gave you those gifts so that you could edify the church. And part of your growth as a Christian comes and happens when you step into exercising spiritual gifts. I was made to minister to the church. That's what I was made for. When Paul talks about the church in Corinthians, he says it's like a body. And a body has many parts, and every part is important. Every part is necessary. If any part is not functioning like it should be, then the, then the, the, the body will not function as it's supposed to. And the foot doesn't say to the hand, why, you, why am I this? He knows. This is what I was made for. You guys, listen to me. You were designed to be the ministers to the church. There's this paradigm here in the Western Christian church that has got to go, and that is that pastors are the professionals and churches are the, churchgoers are the consumers. That is not God's design. God's design was that the church would minister to the church. Not that you would have to not get care because there's a waiting list for counseling from the professional, but that you would be in community with someone that could come alongside you and knows the ins and outs of your life and be there through you, be there with you in it. You are the ministers of the church. You are a royal priesthood. You are the priests now. I don't care if you've been saved two days. God has a gift for you to use, for you to exercise, and you need to be in community to be doing it. It's part of what it is to be the church. Ephesians 4.15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That is how the church is supposed to be functioning. If a church is dying, it's not just the pastor's fault, it's the church's fault. The, the, the mandate of making disciples was not just for the apostles. It was for all believers. We are all called to make disciples. All of us. Our job as pastors is not to pastor everyone in this church. It's to equip leaders so that the church can edify itself and to create contexts and to, and to facilitate areas where people can exercise gifts and the church can feed itself. That's why small groups are so important because there's no possible way that a church staff of any size can meet the needs of every churchgoer, which is not possible, nor should we. Number three, what is biblical community Biblical community is the natural reaction to believing the gospel. I want to point something out to you. Look at verse 17 of Philemon. Look at what Paul says in making the case for this young man. He says, for if you consider me your partner, there's that word again, koinonia, okay? If you, if you consider me in community with you, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your, of your owing me, even your own self. What's Paul doing here? Paul is fulfilling the biblical mandate for community out of response for what's been done for him by Jesus Christ. So, so Paul says, he, he doesn't say, hey, hey, bro, will you just please forgive this guy? 
He says, no. If you don't want to forgive him, then I place myself in his shoes. Here's Onesimus. Paul says, I will stand in front of Onesimus, and I want you to see, Philemon, I want you to see me when you see him. I want you to see my good report with you. I want you to see my relational equity with you. I want you to see my apostolic authority, my position when you look at that young man. Don't see his faults. Don't see his flaws. Look at my righteousness. And whatever it is that charged to his account, charge it to mine. What does that sound like? Paul's doing what he's, what's been done for him. That's exactly what Jesus did for Paul. He stands before God the Father and he says, Father, don't look at Saul, the murderer of Christians. I stand in front of him. See my righteousness. Accredit my righteousness to his account. I'll take his garbage. I'll take his murderous ways. I'll take his stuff. That's the gospel. So Paul is able to have this kind of deep community relationship with this young man and with Philemon because he's doing it out of response for what Christ has done for him. That is how biblical community should happen. And a response to the gospel. Can I point out something interesting? Philemon is the only book in the New Testament that does not mention the cross. Oh, that's weird. Actually, it doesn't need to. It doesn't need to. Because Paul modeled it. He modeled what happened on the cross by saying the gospel, it's just not something we're going to preach. We're going to do it within the avenue of the local church within the avenue of biblical community. He modeled the gospel, and we see it. What an amazing picture. So, how do we achieve that? If we can agree that that the Bible has called us to be in biblical community with one another, intentional community, how do we achieve that when we're in a group or a church that is six, seven, eight hundred people? How are we supposed to do that? Can you do that from a pew on a Sunday morning? Maybe, you catch someone while they're running to get a donut. I'm not saying that this isn't important. This is important. But I'm going to make the case that you cannot have that level of intentionality and you will not have that level of intentionality if you only come and sit in a pew. It is not an adequate avenue for you to have the kind of community God is calling you to. It's just not. It's important that we come together, that we celebrate, that we sing, that we hear the preaching of the word. That is biblically mandated as well. But Sunday morning is insufficient. It is insufficient. And that doesn't mean jump into more programs. That means you need to be in a place where you're serving, not just physically, but with your giftings. An environment where you can pastor people. The Bible has 59 one another verses in the New Testament. 59. Here's just a few of them. Be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. There's a million of those. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Extruct, extruct one another. Greet one another when you come together. Have equal concern for one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Serve one another. The list just goes on and on. And is that talking about the world? That's talking about the church. You are called to be loving the church daily. How do you do that in a group this size? You just can't. You can't. (laughs) When Jesus turned 30 and started his ministry, he grabbed 12 guys. Now, he he ministered to the multitudes, right? I mean, thousands of people come, and he preached, and they had big gatherings, and that's very important. 
You know, what we did last week was super fun. We had 1,200 people there, 36 people got baptized. What an amazing event. Big sound system and stage, and that's great. But Jesus grabbed 12 guys and spent three years with those 12 guys. That was his small group. Now, look at me. Do you think that your relational capacity is bigger than Jesus's? Better not say yes. <laughs> like, well, I know Jesus only had 12, but I got like 30 friends and, you know, like, no, you have 30 shallow relationships. Dude, I got hundreds of shallow relationships. I love all those people, but I'm only in real community with a few. So Jesus had 12, and then out of that 12, he had three. When he went up to, went up to the mountain to, to reveal something about his deity that no one had seen, he took three. And when he spent time around a fire sharing a meal, he had 12. The early church, when they met together, they met in big groups, absolutely. But primarily, they met in homes. And I've been in a house in Israel. I went to Peter's house. It's the size of my bedroom. Okay, if you get 10 people in there, I'm, I'd be blown away. When they met in homes, they met in small groups, very small groups. So, small groups are called millions of different things. Every church has a different thing, right? You guys, have, you've, you've heard, this is not a new concept. It's a biblical concept. At Heritage, we call them huddle groups. Okay, that's what they're called at Heritage. Now, what is a huddle group not? Let me just speak to this really quick. A huddle group is not just a social gathering. It's not just a time for you to come and, and make some friends, okay? Um, I think the reason that most people don't make it in group life is because they think it's just an opportunity to make some friends. And that's all they think it is. That's all they get out of it. It's not just a chance to make some friends. It's a chance to commit yourself to other people for the purpose of gospel formation. It's not just a Bible study, although you will study the Bible. It's not a chance for someone to just teach for an hour. We get, we get that. We get teaching. Sundays, Wednesdays, podcasts, we get lots of teaching. Small group is a time for the leader to facilitate a conversation where you get an opportunity to actually speak and think through the gospel. That's the point conversation. It's not an event that you go to if nothing else is in the way. It's not like, well, if I don't have t-ball, and if I'm not tired, and I haven't fallen asleep by six o'clock, and um, you know what I mean, like, then we'll go. Like, it's something you say, we'll be there. Unless we're on vacation or something, we'll be there, because this is our family, and this is important. Well, what is a huddle group? Here it is, okay? A huddle group is a group of believers that have committed to intentionally grow through authentic, gospel-centered community for a season of time. Doesn't have to be forever, but a season of time. I got opportunity to, to witness um, my in-laws' small group. We went up to a campground where they were at, and these guys have been together for like 10 years or something. It was so cool to see the way they loved each other, the way they interacted, how much fun they had, how much laugh they had, see how many prayer walks people were taking, see how much honesty was there. Man, there's something so cool with longevity. These people have been together. It was amazing. Our vision statement for this ministry is making big feel small by moving heritage from attending to belonging. Our heart is that you wouldn't just feel like you're filling a seat, but that you would feel like you're part of a family. And unfortunately, this church is too big for you to be known if you just come and sit in a seat. You've got to get out of the seat. You've got to make relationships. There's four primary things we emphasize in huddles. One of them is to learn together. We're going to get in the scriptures. We're going to grow together. Second is to serve together. Okay, so like my group and Jacob's group, we do, uh, every group will have a missional focus. 
something that gets you outside of your walls. So we've partnered with every child. We've, we're uh, kind of adopting foster families throughout the valley. You guys saw the video at Church at the Fair. Um, that was actually my, my group's um, foster family that got interviewed, which was really cool. Um, get to bless these. So our group isn't just learning, isn't just coming together. We're also serving together. Okay, that's a huge piece of it. Groups lead together. Everyone in the group will play a part. Someone might be over, uh, you know, the, the, the kid thing. Someone might be over uh, hosting. Someone might be over um, planning activities out. Everyone's going to play a part. Everyone's part of it. And groups do life together. Okay, our group, we have a baby like every week. Um, literally, I think we had like three babies in the last month. So, you know, we're there bringing meals. We see each other in the hospital. We're at each other's birthday parties. I mean, we're just doing life together. That's part of it. So what is changing about huddles? Now you guys might be like, wait a minute, you guys have had huddles. Whatever happened, what happened with huddles? What happened to my huddle? I was in a huddle a year ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you don't know where your huddle is, then we got to change some things, okay? Um, we're changing a few things in regards to the huddle. One of those things is we're trying to, to, to paint the picture that it's not just the leader that needs to be committed. It is the whole group, okay? Because what was happening is, is groups were so loose and easy to get in and out of that there was no real commitment. So now we're, we're just changing it a little bit. The process for getting into a group looks a little different. It looks like this. Grab an application on your way out. Everybody say hi to Jacob. Jacob, can you wave um, your big muscular arm? Okay, uh, Jacob and I are leading this ministry together. He knows more than I do about a lot of things. Um, so he'll be at the info desk. Grab an application from him. Pray about it. Think about it. Some information there too for you. Fill it out if you want to do it. Drop it back at the info desk. Okay, we'll be in touch with you. There's a class now, a class to get into a huddle group, a two-night class. It's going to be a blast. It's going to be really fun. There'll be childcare. It's going to be interactive. So there's a two-night class in August. The dates for that are on there. Once you attend your class, then we'll fit you into a group. You can try it. If it doesn't fit, we'll fit you into another group. Um, but we're going to kind of help you get into the right group because before it was just, you know, pick a group, whatever, any group, you know, um, and it wasn't working. So we're going to try to work with you to really, and work with the leader to get you in the right group where you can really find a family and be there uh, for a while. So that's some of the things uh, that are changing specifically. We're going to limit the size of the groups because some of them were like 50 people and it was just too crazy. Uh, we're going to limit it to seven families. That's it, seven. Okay, if you have more relational capacity than Jesus, then you can lead a group bigger than that. Uh, but, but if you don't, then that's the, that's the cap. Um, it's not an event. Okay, you're saying, I have too many relationships already, Sam. I can't fit another group into my time. Okay, here's, just let me distinguish something. You're not fitting a group into your life. You're fitting your life into a group. Okay? Uh, fitting a, a group into your life means I'm busy. Oh, here's a little, okay, I can maybe squeeze in one more night. You don't need another thing. We have plenty of things. What I want to invite you to do is invite your life into this group. So you still have people over for dinner. You still go to your t-ball game. You just invite your family. You do things together. You make it work. You figure out ways to do things together that doesn't just add more clutter to your life. And honestly, at some point, you have to make relational decisions. If I have this much relational capacity, how much of that should be spent in gospel community? Most of it. Most of it should be. I don't have time to do this would be another thing, okay? Um, again, this isn't fitting. This isn't, I, I said this twice. This isn't fitting your life. Um, I'm just gonna quit there. Um, I've had a bad experience in the small groups, okay? Everyone has. All of us have. If you've been in a small group, it's probably awkward at some point um, and you didn't know the people. You gotta press through that, for one, and you gotta give it a second chance. The church is messy. Relationships are hard, but it's through the messiness that we grow. Okay? You've got to give it some time. My group has been a group for four years. We're just now starting to feel like a family, and it's taken four years. 
four years, not to discourage you. Um, but it's so good now, okay? It's so good now. So, one final thing, and then I'll cut you guys loose. In Philemon, in verse 10, listen to what Paul says. He says, I appeal to you for my what? For my child, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my heart. Listen to the close relationship that these people have. You will never find a deeper relationship than one that is centered on Christ. And I appeal to you, go after that. It doesn't have to be through heritage huddles. The group that I spoke about, uh, my in-laws group, it's not a heritage group, they're just a group. If you have that already, keep going for it. If you don't have that, let's go for it here. He says in verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Paul's saying this relationship that you're going to have now with this boy, Onesimus, it's going to last forever. There are no longer relationships than the ones you will have that are centered on Christ Jesus. Amen? But it will not happen by accident. Being in a Christian community will not happen by accident. It needs to be pursued with intentionality. And that's all I got. Would you guys stand with me? Just a reminder again, so Jacob, and, and I'll probably sneak out that way too, at the info desk, grab an application, grab some information if you're interested. Um, there's more stuff to read there about kind of what we do and seasons and all that kind of stuff. Um, classes in August, I'm gonna pray. Jesus, thank you so much that we get each other. <laughs> what a blessing that we have one another, Lord, to, to go through this life with. What a blessing, Lord, that we get to model uh, the gospel that we preach and believe and God, I just know there's so many people in this church that are longing for that. And I know that it'll be a hard road, Lord. It doesn't happen overnight. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would be a church um, that truly is, is walking in this biblical mandate. A church that is experiencing the joy and the beauty of, of living in, uh, in real relationships centered around you, Christ. So, Lord, would you just do a work in our, char- our church, Lord? We, we fail so often at so many things, Lord. But we just pray, God, that, that you would give us grace to be able to come closer to what your heart is for the church. Lord, I just pray for anyone in here who's just, who's just longing for that. Just give them a path, Lord. And we just love you, Father. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of your day.